welcome to Archive Treasures, where we delve into the collection of the Trentham and Districts Historical Society to see what treasures we can discover. Each episode of Archive Treasures, we will be speaking to a member from the Historical Society. They will be telling us about something special, an object that has been preserved as part of the archival collection, an interesting event that occurred, or a project that the Society is undertaking. Archive Treasures is produced on Jajawarong country. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners, and we would also like to extend our respects to their elders, both past and present. Mentions in Patrick's Day to most people, and it brings to mind hordes of merry revellers, dressed in bright green leprechaun hats and shamrock-adorned tops, gripping their pint of Guinness and singing, tears streaming down their faces. That is the modern version, unashamedly marketed and used to sell Irish-themed merchandise and encourage celebrators to indulge, indeed, overindulge, on the 17th of March each year. As it is, like most present-day festivities, St Patrick's Day has strayed far from its origins. St Patrick, who was not Irish-born, was a 5th-century missionary. Some versions mention him being kidnapped and taken as a slave. He brought Christianity to many parts of the Emerald Isle and was later to become a bishop and made a patron saint of Ireland. March the 17th marks the anniversary of his death and has been celebrated as a feast day for over a thousand years. The modern secular incarnation of St Patrick's Day has its origins in America. It was reportedly in New York City that the first parade took place when, in 1762, Irish soldiers, serving with the English military, marched through Manhattan to a local tavern. Patriotism amongst Irish immigrants in the New York area continued to grow, with the first official St Patrick's Day parade held in 1848. The equivalent parade in the Irish Free State didn't take place until 1931. Irish migration throughout the globe has seen the modern-day celebrations of St Patrick's Day become entrenched in many countries, including Australia. Many of its citizens have left Ireland in times of famine and hardship to take up residency and citizenship of other countries. While this has been common for many countries, Irish migration to Australia has been in significant numbers since the white colonisation of this land. During the years of the Great Irish Famine, 1845-1849, the failure of the potato crop for successive years was the catalyst for many Irish to leave their homes. An article in the Irish Times on the 25th of October 2018 details the transportation of 4,000 orphan girls sent to Australia in the 19th century. At the height of the Irish famine, 
The Earl Grey scheme fashioned a plan to ease overcrowding in the workhouses of Ireland. While providing serving staff, and a way to help settle the new Australian colony. As a result, between 1849 to 1851, 4,000 Irish famine orphan girls were brought to Australia from workhouses across Ireland, with 1,700 arriving in Melbourne. They had been among the destitute, orphans consigned to the despair of workhouses, feared places of last resort for the most desperate. The voluntary scheme was open to girls aged 14 to 20 years who were deemed suitable and healthy. After the brutal conditions of the workhouses and the horror of the great hunger, life on board ship was a significant improvement. According to 1848 records of the Lady Kennaway, the complement of 191 Irish orphan girls were well behaved and in excellent health enjoying the benefit of a full allowance of rations on the 85-day voyage. Although few could read and almost none could write, they were given a prayer book and testament from their poorhouses. The article details their reception being anything but friendly. How little has changed with welcoming those less fortunate to these shores. The article continues. Expectations must have been high for their new life in the new world, but, instead, they met a climate of fear and suspicion towards the influx of Irish refugees. But the orphan girls were made of stern stuff. While some undoubtedly fell on hard times, most would successfully marry and raise healthy families across Australia. Today, many thousands of their descendants are living testament to the courage and strength of the Irish Famine Orphan Girls. Three of the least known stories intersect with another moment in Australian history, as members of the Kelly Gang had Irish Famine Orphan Girls in their families. In an essay, Not Just Ned, A True History of the Irish in Australia, Richard Reid, Senior Curator at the National Museum of Australia, writes... Irish-born immigrants and their descendants have been a feature of the Australian population since the arrival of the first fleet in New South Wales in 1788. Their influence upon and contribution to Australia's ever-changing and evolving cultural, economic, political and social life was of central significance. This stems from the fact that the Irish and their descendants formed a large segment somewhere between 20 and 30% of the population up until 1914, and some suggest well beyond that. Before the large-scale continental European and English immigration of the post-1945 decades, Australia has been described as a fairly faithful mirror of the early 19th century United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Ireland, where the Irish formed a third of the population. Australia remains the most Irish country in the world, outside Ireland. In this episode, we have been speaking to locals who have links back to Ireland. Beth Toomey speaks about her Irish ancestors, settling in East Trentham in 1868, and then 
her own recollections of growing up in the largely Irish Catholic community. Father Declan O'Brien, parish priest for the combined parishes of Our Lady of the Rosary in Kyneton and St Mary Magdalene in Trentham, speaks of Ireland and Australia and how he has found living in both countries. Okay, well, today I'm talking to Father Declan from the parish of Kyneton and Trentham. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us today. No worries. We're going to have a chat about all things Irish and mm-hmm. St Patrick's Day yeah. and what that means to you. But before we start, can you tell us a little bit about okay. yourself? I was born in um, 1966 in Birmingham, in the West Midlands of England. Both my parents uh, come from a town in West Cork in Ireland called Bandon. They uh, met in Birmingham. Well, actually, they met in their hometown. They used to go to the cinema together occasionally. They ended up in Birmingham together. Mum was an auxiliary nurse, and Dad worked in various factories in a very localised part of Birmingham and around Hansworth in Birmingham. Uh, they got married in St. Francis Church in Bur- in Hansworth on May the... No, June. That's my mother's birthday. Um, June the 5th, 1965, I arrived on the scene in April, actually the feast day of St. George, patron of England, on April the 23rd, 1966. And one day, Mum and Dad went to see a movie together. And back in days of yore, they used to show, like, news clips before the main feature. And on one news tip, there was a, like an advertisement from the Australian Department of Immigration, which read, come to sunny Australia. Um, So it kind of piqued Dad's interest at the time. The United Kingdom certainly was going through, I suppose, financial hard times. And all a lot of workers were on a three-day week. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So they were trying to cut back on wages and stuff like that, you know. So kind of piqued Dad's interest a small bit, come to Sunny Australia. And uh, next thing he found himself at, I suppose, the outbranch of Australia House in Birmingham and heard back from them about a week after his visit to go for, um, for himself and Mum to go for a chest X-ray. And within a week of that, he got a telegram back from them saying, right, you're... You're leaving the United Kingdom on May the 21st from Southampton and you'll be coming, you'll be traveling out to Melbourne. They actually made the selection where you were moving to. Oh. You, you weren't, you didn't get a choice where, where you went in Australia. So come out to me on the, on the, what's it again, motor vessel. I always get it all mixed up, Fair Sea, Fair sea or Fair Star. So found ourselves down in Southampton, me, my, my mum, my dad, and I, in 1967. And we arrived into Port Melbourne on June the 27th, I think it was, 1967, and straight out to the Migrants Hostel in Braybrook. And um, we were there for, we were in the Migrants Hostel for about less than a year because, yeah, they... um, I suppose they wanted to get on to living the Australian dream. 
kind of you know uh, at least put money together to put a deposit on a house and kind of establish themselves so we did that and um well they did that dad at times worked three, three or four jobs so how old have you you would have been about i was three or four. Been about a year yeah, yeah. Oh, well, just just over a year, eighteen months, maybe yeah. whatever. Um, so we got out, got out, left the migrants' hostel. They had money to put on a, a deposit on a house in Altona. Uh, we moved there, and we were there for two or three years. Then they heard of a housing development being built in Deer Park, so they sold what they had in Altona. And we rented a house in Seddon until the place in Deer Park was built. And then she moved to Deer Park and we were there for 19, I'd like to say 1972 to 77, 78. At which stage, um, they'd taken us on holidays to Ireland in 1975. So when you went back, it was back to Ireland, not yeah, to... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that yeah. time, yeah. Um, so we went on holidays to Ireland and we came back from the holiday and I'd say from that out, mom and dad, all mom and dad wanted to do was actually move home or go home, mm -hmm. um, which we eventually did on St. Left actually on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, really? 19... <laughs> God, I'm not very good on dates like this. 19... I think it was 1977. Yeah. Yeah. So moved back to their hometown originally. Uh, and where was that again? You in Abandon in County Cork, right. which is part of West Cork in Ireland. And then after that, they had a little bit of money put together from the time out here. Um, yeah, Dad was working in the local creamery or dairy mm. at home, mainly producing butter. Like, well, I don't know, did he actually? I don't think he actually made butter, but he was certain, he certainly did a lot, a lot of deliveries and stuff like that. So after a year, they actually bought a pub. So, so a real Irish pub. A real Irish and pub. In Ireland. Kind of, well, not really, but yeah, it, yeah. It, was a, it was a pub with, a, a, with an almighty lounge room, which is basically a dance hall. So we used to have bands come in and play the weekend, like on Saturday night. And one of the groups we had, and one of the guys that played in the hall was Jimi Hendrix. I don't know how the hell we got him, <laughs> but they did. It was through someone else who knew him, a guy called Noel Redding, who I think at some stage may have, I think he was a drummer with Hendrix. I think, I'm not too, not hundred percent sure of that, but anyway. Um, so they had about a year or two. I think what they learned from that experience was they're not business people. It didn't work out almightily well and um, certainly has scarred them for life about pubs running businesses i mean they know they know it's not for them do you know that kind of way uh, so we moved them to a town called cove spelled you won't believe this c-o-b-h but it's pronounced c-o-v-e it's the gaelic spelling so the b-h sound in gaelic makes the v sound in english ah, okay. so it's cove uh, which was ironically the last stop of the titanic before she hit the iceberg. Anyway, so it's claimed to. So fight. I was actually, I actually did my, did a lot of my secondary education in Cove, and would consider Cove my home from home. Do you know, 
Um, and I didn't come back to Australia until the year after I was ordained a priest. So I was ordained in 1997. Managed to save like man, I said, I'd just like to go back to Australia one more time. Yeah. Just to go see if my memories of the place are true. So, so, came, so as a priest, you're allowed to say... Well, it was a, I came on holiday. Oh, right, okay. And it was only for three weeks. My dad's brother moved to Australia a month before we did in 1967. And he's remained here. He stayed here. So I actually came out to visit him. I spent three weeks out here and on the plane back to London to go back to Ireland, I spent three quarters of the journey in tears. Oh. If I could have hijacked don't <laughs> if I could have hijacked the plane to turn back, I would have done. I did not want to go back. Why was that? I've always felt Australia to be my home. Your birth well it well, wasn't your birthplace. my birthplace, but certainly kind of Spiritual home, mm. my soul home. I don't know what you want to call. Yeah, yeah, where kind of where I belong, um, where I kind of fit in a little bit, you know. Yeah, so it took me ten years to actually get back. It's a long time. Ah, oh, just had to do some planning around it, and actually kind of discern for myself: Am I being totally foolish here? Is this where I really should be going? Is this where I really, is this where I'm being called to live my life as a human being, as a priest? Is this what, is this where I got, is this my mission? Is this what I really should be doing? Took me 10 years to actually say, yeah, it is. Go and do something about it. So it took me 10 years to do that. Um, literally had to get the permission of the church to move here, which they granted. So I found myself on Malaysian Airlines flight on October the 21st, 2009, on a flight bound for Melbourne. One-way ticket. And did you have a parish you were coming to or a job? Uh, yes. Yeah, that had already been kind of sorted out. Yeah. So initially when I came here, um, I was appointed as stand-in parish priest of um, parish down in Bandura. St. Damien's, I was there for three months and then get a phone call one day from the Archbishop's office saying, oh, well, you know, that's only a temporary appointment. So you're being permanently appointed as parish priest of uh, St. Mary's in the smack dead centre of Dandenong. And I was there for seven years and it was a real eye-opener. Um, found it quite challenging at first because I've never been in a parish, certainly, that is so multicultural. And I must I struggled with that at times. I mm. really did. Is that different, but, well, not different beliefs, but different... Oh, just approaches. different cultures. I mean, yeah. Indians, Sri Lankans, Afghanistanis, uh, Vietnamese. It was Everyone. just a whole melting pot. And I think what I had to come to realize was, this is modern day Australia. This is the way it is. This is what you're signing up for, mate. Um, it took me a while to settle in. But when I did settle in, I used, to love this. I used to love getting up in the morning and going out to my backyard 
I mean, the city center was only, what, two minute walk away from where I was living. But the smell in the morning. So a lot of the Indian restaurants would be, I suppose, doing their fruit fruit prep first thing, you know, first thing in the morning. And you'd always get the smell of frying onions. It was a kind of a smell that you began to love. And I would have a very low, I used to have a low tolerance of eating curry. Yeah. But it came to the point where I kind of actually enjoyed it in the end. Um, not now, not very hot curry, but, but flavor, but, the but flavor, the, the flavor, and the aroma yeah. stuff and stuff like that. Oh yeah. God, yeah. So yeah, it grew in me, it grew in me. So you were there seven years. I was there seven years, and then, then got appointed as parish priest of Coynton and Frentham. I kind of asked for it in some ways. I wanted. When I approached the Aristocles, I was like, it's coming to the stage where I, may, I maybe would like a different experience of Australian parish life. Um, and at the time, they were looking for priests to come out to country parishes. Mm. So I was appointed here to Kyneton and Trenton in September 2017. Yeah. And I've been here since. And it's been great. It's been very, it's been an interesting experience. Um, Having the two parishes. with the Two parishes together, but two very different parishes too, in some ways, two very different communities. And that is not a, judge, a value judgment on either place, but it's just the reality of the situation. The one thing they have in common, I look at faces a lot and if Australians didn't speak so weirdly, I could swear I'm back in Ireland. People's faces. That <laughs> Irish influence is still around the place. And you can see people's faces and stuff like that. Yeah. I think you can. And even in, I suppose, Australian rural life and Irish rural life, there's not much of a difference, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. There's not much of a difference. Other than, other than when people open their mouths and speak, it's kind of, okay, I am an Australian. <laughs> it sounds a bit different. <laughs> it sounds a little bit different. Yeah, that's it. So part of the podcast we're doing is, yeah. this is around St. Patrick's Day, but also mm -hmm. about Irish migration. Mm -hmm. And we've talked to people whose families, or someone whose yeah. family came out mm -hmm. mid, I think, 1860s. Right. And that was after the big famine. It and was. Things. Mm -hmm. When you were... You would have lived through the troubles in Ireland, or uh, parts of it, a um, away from you, and kind of, yeah. So troubles mainly affected Northern Ireland, yeah. which would be got at least a good two to three hundred kilometers away from from uh, where where home is for me. But even so, it did have an influence in the way that during the hunger strikes in the what do they call it the maze prison in Belfast. There would have been in the Republic of Ireland. There would have been, let's say, uh, protest marches uh, to that, you know, to kind of maybe pressurize the British government to, um, you know, allow for that these uh, men be treated as political prisoners rather than criminal, you know, crim crim uh, criminal prison prisoners. So we lived through that a little bit. Then when I actually went to study with the priesthood, a lot of my a lot of my, let's say, colleagues in the seminary would have been from Northern Ireland. 
and certainly would have heard a lot of their stories of, let's say, living and growing up and what that was like during the Troubles and stuff like that, you know. Again, that was a real eye-opener. And in the my second year as a seminarian, and we were taken on a fact-finding mission to West Belfast. And again, that was a real eye-opener. And just to see how intimidating it is to, you know, walk down the streets and be, let's say, to to pass a British Army um, patrol, you know, with guns down and, you know, walking the street. And it is, well, it's, it's eye-opening. So, and it's somewhat terrifying too, obviously, especially when you're not used to that kind of stuff, you know. You're also realising that, look, on both sides of the divide, let's say British, Irish, Unionist, Nationalist, neither side is right, neither side is wrong. Um, mistakes, which sometimes have been fatal mistakes, have been made on both sides. You know? Not black and white. It's not black and white at all. And I guess, I guess look, if this, if it's ever, if that division is ever to be healed, maybe we could take a leaf out of the book of South Africa. Truth and, was it Truth and Reconciliation Commission and stuff like that? Get out in the open and, you know, if you don't treat a wound properly, it's going to keep kill, keep on getting infected, you know? Yeah. Same with human nature. Was St. Patrick's Day a big thing when you were growing up? Here or in Ireland? I don't have any <coughs> memories of it here in Australia at all. Apart from the day you... Apart from, <laughs> apart, geez, yeah, God, <laughs> apart from that day. Um... In Ireland, it is and in Ireland it is still a holy day of obligation that people, you know, should or could attend mass to celebrate the National Patrons Day, right? Mm. But as regards any other form of celebration, oh, we'd have a march through the town, all right? Like there'd be a few bands and stuff like that. It's become more. It's become a little bit, bit more celebratory, in the fact that. It, um, I suppose it's always been advertised really in America where they, you know, in some places they um, put green dye in the local river. You've got big marches, well, obviously, like in New York and probably Boston too, any of the big Irish centres in the United States. You think uh, that's because people of not in their home country, it's it becomes prob more, probably is. more of an identity. And it's kind of like... It's one day apparently in the United States where everyone's Irish. You know, even if let's say, oh, like my, my great, 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 great grandfather came here from wherever in Ireland back in just, just before Columbus got here, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and I guess in some ways, I mean, the one thing I, in Ireland, it's become really prevalent to call it Paddy's Day. Drives me mad. It's not Paddy's Day, it's St. Patrick's Day. This is the feast day of St. Patrick. And to hear it called Paddy's Day is kind of like, I think it's kind of cheapening it. Why not call it what? It's St. Patrick's Day. Um, so you won't be doing anything special here for it? Or? Um, the night before I am. But other than that, I mean, I'll celebrate Mass on St. Patrick's Day, obviously, and dedicate it to St. Patrick's. I know in the cathedral in Melbourne, they normally have a Mass, which they invite all the schools too as part of 
Catholic Mission Week or something like that, which is fair enough, that's good. Mm. And the Archbishop gives uh, what he calls the St. Patrick's Day oration every year, where he looks at, well, St. Pat, it's obviously in Melbourne, the cathedral is dedicated to St. Patrick, and I guess the Archdiocese is too, as the greatest Irish, prop, probably the greatest Irish missionary that ever lived, even though he wasn't Irish, he was Welsh. So, one Brit who did good in Ireland. Sorry. <laughs> Probably a load of others too. <laughs> okay. Music. Has that been a big... Uh, yeah. No, but sort of tradition it's become, of Irish It's become music. more traditional. Uh, my taste in music, certainly, as regards that Irish traditional music, it's grown over the last, what, five or six years. Because mum and dad would always like, they'd always have Irish music on on a Sunday morning after Mass, as we were getting Sunday lunch ready, but it was like Irish country music, as in like Slim Dusty here. You have your own kind of stars at home who would sing kind of country and Western type music, but with a very Irish flavour. But I'd have to say, since the, I suppose, the advent of Enya, and she would have been my, my linchpin of interest into trap music, yeah, my interest and love for it has actually grown. And I think also since coming here to Trentham, I know that uh, they used to have pre-COVID in Mary Walter's place down Railway Farm. I can't remember what Friday every, every month, what Friday every month they had it, but there was like a, a like trad music night. So people just get together in the big lounge room up there and... If you play an instrument, you play an instrument or a recitation of a poem, sing a song or something like that. And I know they used to do, do the same again in the Pig and Whistle in East Trentham. So, yeah. So, yeah, my interest for it and love for it has certainly grown over the last few years a lot. Do you see yourself staying in Australia? Well, I took up citizenship a few years ago. Oh, good. So, no plans to go home. No plans whatsoever. I told my parents when I came to Australia, look, I know it sounds like a fairly morbid thing to say, but I said, look, I'm going to die in Australia. Whenever that time comes, that's where I want my, my last moment of breath to be taken. It kind of, kind of took my first breaths in this country mm. and I want to take my last breaths in this country too. Yeah. You know, so it's home. It's home. Home. I'm very lucky I've got two homes in this world. So I don't feel kind of separated from either of them at any time. So you f do you feel more Australian than Irish or I don't know. a combination? I'd say a healthy combination of both. I remember someone asking me once, say, do you ever suffer from homesickness? Or did I ever suffer from homesickness? And so I really did. Um, look, at times there are certain things you're... I miss about Ireland, yeah. But it's not, they're not really important things. It's not pulling you back. No, no, good Lord, no. I mean, occasionally the taste of an Irish potato, a real Irish potato. An, an Irish, Irish potato. They toast, taste totally different to the potatoes you get here. Um, some meat products, believe it or not, blood pudding, black and white pudding, which you can't really get in Australia. You can, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't taste exactly, exactly right, mm -hmm. but it's almost there. 
Um, it is said they're pithy little things, really. I mean, there's as as you say, there's nothing major that would actually say, right, I'm going back. Do you know, no way. And family. I mean, I miss my family at times, obviously too. Yeah. Um, but thank God for FaceTime. Thank God for Skype. We don't Zoom, as you said at the beginning. Thank God for technology because it does does shorten the miles. Really, really does. Yeah. Just, just wish the time difference wasn't so much. What is the time difference actually? At the moment, it's they Ireland, well, the British Isles in yeah. general, are eleven hours behind oh, us. That's awkward. So in the winter, it it it's up to twelve or thirteen hours, I think. Okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for talking to us today. No hassle. No um, problem. So happy, happy St Patrick's Day. And the same to you. Yes. And the same to you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today, Beth. Before we start, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? You were born in East Trentham? I was born in East Trentham. I escaped Dr Glenn. She was present at my older sister's birth. But I, like the rest of my family, were born in Kyneton. I'm the fifth of six children to Patrick James Toomey, who grew up at 200 Pearsons Road. In, well, just over the border into East Trentham. And my mother was Bridget DeWire from Glenwood in Newton's Lane in Fern Hill. The families, of course, were known to each other, both then of Irish Catholic heritage. And as the whole district was almost all Irish Catholic, you knew everybody and everybody knew you. So we lived in the house at, which was built for my parents in 1934 at 764 James Lane which is one of the nearer houses to the Pig and Whistle, diagonally opposite and south up James Lane, and lived there until I was eight and a half when, uh, because of an uncle's death, the family moved to Monageta and lived there for the next 13 years. That meant I needed to go to boarding school, although I had started school as almost a five-year-old at Sacred Heart in East Trentham, which at the time was located next to the church, which is still standing, but the school was sold off by one of the parish priests. And, um, and that's a sore point, I gather. from and, <laughs> and left and moved somewhere else, but at least it went off to be used somewhere else. The church uh, was later sold by the Archdiocese of Melbourne, a very upsetting experience for people whose ancestors had built it, paid for it, maintained it. But... The decision was made. Was the decision out was taken out of hand. Yes, you know, <clears throat> it's still regretted by a lot of people. But the church, fortunately, is still, still there, so it's still a landmark in the district. The reason why we're talking today is because St Patrick's Day is coming up and we thought we'd do a, a podcast about Irish migration to East Trentham as, as really the area that people came to. And the Irish Catholic thing is quite a strong in the area. Oh, it certainly yeah. was. I don't know how they got here. It's an absolute mystery when you think they travelled from close, settled, insular sort of backgrounds in Ireland, the other side of the world, under pretty difficult circumstances, I would have thought. My great-grandfather, John Toomey, came here with his new bride, Margaret Slattery, in 1858. They had married in Limerick 
at the end in October 1857. One assumes they arrived soon after and went to a place called Friarstown where they had their first couple of children. Then somehow, I guess it's just the savvy Irish, knew where there was good land, good mm. soil, and thought that the district of East Trentham was a suitable place to grow potatoes, which at that time, in the right through the 17th, 18th, 19th century, was the go-to food. No such thing as couscous, quinoa, basmati rice, abario rice, jasmine rice, none of that. It was pure potatoes. Good spud. And everybody ate potatoes. Some families, of course, only had or had only potatoes, but, of course, if you could spin them out and add some meat to them and other vegetables, you were doing okay. So I guess it was just word of mouth that encouraged the Irish to come here. And my great-grandfather came here in 1868, which was 10 years after he arrived in Australia. He must have made enough money to purchase his first blocks of land, which, are, which were about 24 acres, on the east side of Lagoon Road, where it meets Pearson's Road. And a couple of hundred yards down Pearson's Road, he built firstly a weatherboard house, which stood until 1943, when it had no further use and that was demolished. And he built the red brick house, which is on the right-hand side at 200 Pearson's Road. And despite its exterior appearance, the house is still in very good condition and has all the traits that people value in a house. High ceilings, good quality plasterwork, marble fireplaces, and fortunately has been kept in pretty much its original condition. Um, my father and mother built a house in James Lane. As I said, we lived there for, until I was eight and in 1954 moved to Monageta. Up until then, my whole world was East Trentham. All my neighbours were Irish Catholic, O'Briens, O'Connells, Riles, Beatties, Hearts. We went to school with that group of people, Hickeys, um, went to, walked to school with them or rode a bike, despite what the weather was like, played with them on weekends and socialised with them. Went to church, I guess, with them as well. Oh, very definitely. And no one would miss church. No one would miss it. Not because of their devotion to the Catholic religion, I don't think. It was just uh, such a stigma if you weren't seen at church. So as well as, uh, and of course, every day during lunchtime, beginning of lunchtime, we would have to go into the church and say a prayer. Oh, from school? From school, because, because it was door. right next door, like mm. 20 metres across the mm. across the way. So, Lots of funny stories can be told about children who went to school and what life was like. We were aware of other schools in the district, but never saw them, never went to them, and it was um, a great divide in the, in the community, which, of course, looking back now, you can't believe that a little community like East Trentham could be divided along religious grounds, but we are talking about the 30s, 40s and 50s when I started school, and it, it was very much divided on religious grounds, although you weren't antagonistic towards people of other religions, you just didn't fraternise with them in the same way. Were you aware of your Irish 
I was, I was very aware, very, very aware of my Irish heritage. You had the Archbishop Mannix, Dr. Mannix, photograph up on your wall. You had lots of pictures of Catholic saints on your wall. And all the music you heard and all the music you learnt, because everyone learnt an, an instrument, usually piano for girls, was Irish music or classical music. Music permeated every family, not mine very much, because neither of my parents, well, my father certainly wasn't musical. My mother, of course, learnt the piano and played piano. And if she wasn't playing the organ for church services, my aunt was. And if she wasn't, my next door neighbour was. All girls knew music. All people sang. And one of the things that was noticeable prior to me and my age, I was born in 1945, prior to that, there was a very strong form of Irish entertainment in the district. And when I read about the history of the district, I'm just amazed at the effort people made to travel to parties and dances and weddings and concerts, all with an Irish theme. As a young child, I remember coming to, on a Sunday night, coming to a Irish concert at the Mechanics Institute here in, in High Street in Trentham. There was a group of Irish dancers with which I fell in love and was destined to grow up. At that time, I thought I would grow up to be an Irish dancer and I taught myself a few steps and I listened to all the jigging. But by the time I went to boarding school, somehow or other that... You'd moved on, had you? <laughs> I'd moved on, yes, yes, yes. I read stories about the parties that went on. People whom you believed lived very modestly would have the most grand parties for birthdays, weddings. Uh, they would have 20, 30, 50, 100, 150 people in their modest little cottages and the music would play and people would dance. And another form of entertainment was people would get up and tell stories or recite poetry. I don't think these days you get too many 18, 20, 25, 30-year-olds reciting poetry at a concert. But it was very much a part of the culture, the Irish tradition. Also, people with wonderful voices, and they would sing their ballads, all typical Irish songs. And I suppose it's no, um, no surprise that my mother's favourite song was Danny Boy. Can you sing it? Can you give us a tune? I couldn't. I wouldn't even try, but I love to listen to it. Um, it was my brother, my oldest brother, John, has very few requests in life, has very few, makes very few demands on anybody, has very few needs, probably because his sisters look after him so well. Mm. But the only thing he wants at his funeral is to play Danny Boy. And when my other brother, Patrick, was buried two weeks ago, Danny Boy was the piece of music that played. So there's, there's a bit of a tradition there. and um, A very significant. Absolutely, absolutely. Until quite recent times, I didn't know that that was a significant part of their life. To your brothers. Um, yeah. It obviously was. Mm. And once upon a time, I knew the words, but I was sure declined to sing. <laughs> okay. I think you've had to have a few drinks before you're supposed to uh, launch into it. Exactly. Yes. And um, what's interesting, Irish have a tradition of, of 
drinking heavily and gambling. My parents, my family, both families were pretty straight in that respect. But so many stories of so many funny incidents amongst the Irish Catholics. And they were very supportive of each other. You didn't buy with them. You worked with them. Um, if they needed help, you had a horse that could help. You needed, if they needed a cart, you would provide a cart. It was a very sharing community, unlike a lot of things these days where you might be asked to pay for simple things you do for people, mm. for neighbours and so on. It was just a given, a given in the Irish Catholic you community. You help each other out. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, everybody would turn up to um, working bees at the school. I read something recently about the mother's club at the school passed a, a motion that they would accept unmarried women onto the committee for the school because a lot of the women at the time in the sort of 40s and 50s hadn't married, been of marriageable age at the end of the war and through the Spanish flu period, late um, 1990s, 1920s, they, they weren't married. And I could probably think of six or eight spinsters who lived within a mile of my house and the Mothers' Club very generously allowed them to come on the Sacred Heart East Trentham. That would have been quite radical back then, I would have thought. It was. I think it might have had something to do with boosting the numbers. Oh, okay. <laughs> but on the other hand, those women who weren't mothers would have pulled their weight and done everything because mm. they would have had nieces or nephews going mm. to the school, and they would have contributed just as much as the mothers. But there was this um, little, little clause in the... Uh, constitution shall we say which was only for mothers but that was changed and so all the spinsters and as I said I can think of eight or ten of them within a mm. mile of where I grew up who would all about the same age and all pull their weight for all sorts of activities. Fundraising was important for the school and for the church. People were very generous they were not very wealthy financially had wealth in other ways but they weren't financially very wealthy, but they would always give generously. Of course, there was always a position that you were seen, you were noted if you weren't generous, which um, these days wouldn't be looked on mm. in the same way as it was then, but uh, people really gave more than they could afford because of the power of the church and perhaps their deep conviction that that was the right thing to do. Life was simple. For instance, your forms of entertainment for young people on Saturdays and Sundays were sport. All the Catholic churches in the district had their own tennis team. So you'd have to travel for that? Or? Yes, Woodend, Kyneton, Tilden. I don't think East Trentham ran to their own um, tennis team, but certainly my brother played, I think, in the Trentham team. And there would be St Mary, Magdalene, that's the Catholic mm. team, yes. and then there would be the Trentham mm. team. And the same in Woodend, you'd get the Catholic team, uh, or a team made of Catholics went to the, that church yeah. or that school. However, going back in earlier days, East Trentham was able to muster a football team of their own, and they also played hurling. We now think of it as an old-fashioned Irish sport, but there were hurling teams in the district. So there must have been lots of Irish people to keep those teams mm -hmm. going. There was a funny incident, a funny story I read about the East Trentham football team going to Woodend for a competition. When they arrived in Woodend, and this is going back in the 1890s, 
They arrived in Woodend to find that there were no, no provisions for them. So they had to take themselves off to the local pub to have lunch. And then they had to come back and play their game. They were very miffed about that. They were also miffed about the fact that the Wood End team couldn't muster up the full team. So they dragged in a few onlookers from the spectators to fill in the vacancies. Although one person was known to comment that they would have been better off playing without the Rands because they were no no Mm -hmm. help at all. And sting in the tail of the story was that the East Trentham players were so disappointed in their treatment from Wood End that they weren't ever going to play them again. Yes, so rivalries and and that sort of thing. But uh, it was seen as very poor form. Mm. One assumes that if you make the trek from East Trentham to Wood End, which is about uh, 23, 24 kilometres, on horses and drays and in gigs, that the least you would be offered would be some some form of nourishment before Mm. and refreshment. Some hospitality. Yes, Yes. some hospitality. Maybe Mm. not of the right sort if it was prior to a football match, but um, there's a residual bitterness between the two Mm. teams. There are also photographs in the resurrected pig and whistle of old football teams Mm. from the early days of the 20th century. My father being one of them, although my mother always said, oh, he was just the orange boy. He would have been home from boarding school in Ballarat at the time, and she thought he was about 14, and but too young to play, but not too young to pull his weight and provide some sort of support. Be part, part of the, of the team. team, yes, 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 yes. And it would have been a big family outing. Mm. All the family would have dressed up in their warmest clothes, one assumes, and gone off to watch an mm. interesting game of football. One thing I might mention is I grew up being very conscious of mixed marriages. A mixed marriage was a marriage between people, uh, between a Catholic and any other type of religion. We weren't fussy as to what type of oh, religion Christian or other. It was, well, there weren't many others. There were <laughs> Indians, some Indians in the district, mm. but they don't think they would have been looking at a Catholic, Irish Catholic. Mm. And it was made very hard, very difficult by the church. They couldn't marry within a church. They had to marry in the sacristy, which is where the priest prepares for a, a service. From a, an official point of view, it was very hard. There were families that managed it very well. There was still some stigma in it right up until my generation, when my my siblings, my friends, my relatives were marrying in the 60s, late 60s, mm. 70s. And I, when I mentioned that to my nieces and nephews now who are 1980s, 90s babies, they think I'm speaking a foreign language. It's just such an alien thought and practice. They just can't believe it ever happened. But that was a carry-on from the old days of the Mm. Irish, dare I say, bigotry and, and fear. A lot of a lot of the Irish Catholics grew up in a form of fear, as opposed to the loose living Italian Catholics who seemed to manage living happily by not going to mass every Sunday, but do they do have very impressive first communions, baptisms, marriages, and so on, and all of that was tolerated by the Italian stream of Catholicism, but totally in, intolerant amongst. Do you think Irish Catholics? Because I mean, we're talking today about East Trentham and the Irish Catholic migration into the area. 
And you're telling me before we started recording about when you were growing up, really, and before then, that was your your life, your working circle, your social circle, because people didn't travel. Do you think that opening up, you know, getting cars and people working away from home, that really has accelerated that change? Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, I think you only have to look at Irish history until some of the things that we would have accepted, like divorce and mixed marriages, for want of a better term, amongst the Irish lasted a lot, lot longer, Mm -hmm. the intolerance against The control of the church. Yes, the control of the church, exactly. Orphanages, how orphanages were run. It's only been really in the last 20 or 30 years that that has changed a lot in Ireland. Here in Australia, it started changing in the 60s. I suppose Mm -hmm. the the roaring, not the roaring 60s, the wild 60s or whatever, things changed a lot from the 60s onwards Mm -hmm. about social issues. And changed at a speed that we were surprised about, you know, like Mm. parents in an earlier age would never have thought of us marrying a Protestant or not marrying, you know, Mm. you just didn't marry a Protestant. In fact, all the children in our family had mixed married marriages, but by that time it didn't matter because you weren't expected to marry in a Catholic church. You didn't have to be married by a priest. You weren't condemned to hell if you didn't marry a Catholic, and chose to marry outside the Catholic Church, which was the Catholic doctrine at the time. So in one generation, it changed a lot. Mm. And I think that changed a lot because of Australia's attitude in general to the world around them, whereas Ireland, in a lot of those social issues, were much slower at accepting change and very definitely from the um, huge influence of the Catholic Church. Was St Patrick's Day an important day when you were growing up? Any day that gave you a day off school was an important day. And there would be sports, St Patrick's Day sports, against other Catholic schools in the district. By that time, of course, by the time I went to school in the mid-50s, I would have started in about 50 or 51. There were such things as buses and cars. So we would go to a sports ground at another school or at the Trentham Sports Ground and compete against other Catholic schools, although we also had a wider sports day where we competed against all schools in the district. And that was the reason I started school. My brother rode his bike home at lunchtime one day and told my mother I had to start school because there was no one to go into in the under-six running race for East Trentham, Sacred Heart East Trentham. And I was nearly five, so it was thought, okay, I could go. So my mother put on my best dress, put me on the back of my brother's bike, and he rode me to school. And that was the beginning of my schooling. And how did you do in the race? I won. Oh, well done. One of my, one of my small talents when I was young was I was quite good at, at sport and athletics. I think the reason I won is because I was told to run and don't stop. So I ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And I didn't even know that I'd gone past the... That you'd finished. That I'd finished, yes. I'd gone past the the rope, the string, whatever it was. I remember that day quite clearly. I was in the kitchen. Pat walked into the kitchen and said, Mum, Beth has to start school. We haven't got anybody in the under six. I think it was probably for girls. I didn't think we had mixed races in those days. So that was it. The beginning of a stellar schooling career. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I stayed at uh, Sacred Heart East Trentham until I was eight and a half, grade three. Went to Sacred Heart 
ladies' college, as it was known in Kyneton, with a lot of the other girls, Mary Beatty, Geraldine Rao, Cathy O'Brien, from the local district. Um, Did you catch the bus to school? No, no, no such thing as that. By that time, we were in Monagita, uh, and I boarded during oh. the week and went home weekends. When my younger sister started, and we used to go home for weekends because my mother couldn't bear. She lost pretty well four children out of our home in one, one hit. My oldest brother stayed in East Trentham. My next brother was farming at home. The next three girls were at boarding school. So, yeah, four of the six children were not living at home with my parents. We came home on each uh, weekends, on and off over the next six years that I spent at Kyneton before I went to Melbourne to finish school. But, well, there were two career paths, nursing and teaching, or secretarial work, three career paths. And for most of the families I mixed with, it was to Melbourne to get work. If you lived in a place like Trentham or Kyneton, you were more likely to pick up work in Trentham at the tyre factory. In Kyneton, there were more jobs, including shop jobs, like a shop assistants. But those jobs really weren't available to people out on the farms and perhaps who had more aspirations to mm. travel a bit further. And also, there was a very, very good network of Catholic schools, all established by, almost all of them established by Irish Catholic nuns, priests and brothers. St. Patrick's in Ballarat was the major one, and even my uncles were going to school in Ballarat in the early 1900s, 1910, 1920, even before that perhaps. And a number of other Catholic boys in the district went to Ballarat. The opportunity arose then to go to Marist Brothers in Kyneton, and a taxi would drive the likes of Bill O'Connell, Terence Rahl, Pat Toomey, Catherine Toomey, to Kyneton each Monday morning and bring them home by taxi each, after, each Friday afternoon because the boys' school didn't take boarders over the weekend. So that worked, and it was much closer home, mm. of course, and I suppose much more economical for, on families to be able to send their children for a better, more education beyond the grade eight, which is what the local primary schools offered. There was very, very little consideration given to send your children to state schools or high schools. It basically was a Catholic school or no school, which was a terrible shame in a way because it cut off. The high schools would have been closer Mm. and more available and therefore Mm. provide a better education. But there was also that prevalence in, in the district at that time that you grew up, you got your education to whatever level your parents thought appropriate, and then you worked on a farm. If, you, if your family owned land, that was your destiny. There were very few young people who moved out of the district probably between 1900 and 1940 or 50s. One generation after another. That's right, that's right. And of course, if you had land, you had a guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. You could work the land and you, were, you would have assured of getting some sort of income, particularly when potatoes was the major mm-hmm. crop. So if people wanted potatoes or meat, Trentham, East Trentham was the place to be. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, would also account for the number of large blocks of land in the town itself, in the town of Trentham. An acre of land what might seem very big for a building block these days and unfortunately gets divided up into four mm-hmm. dwellings but in those days, there would have been a cow, maybe a horse, maybe a pig, 
a goat, although they weren't very, very common, and of course a very large vegetable garden. So people were much more self-sufficient in those days. And if somebody had two cows, well, they would have extra milk that they would sell to neighbours. So um, it worked. Mm. Uh, it worked. A lot of people should be grateful for the upbringing they had and their Irish Catholic heritage. Mm. The one thing that did permeate that Catholic culture was music and religion. And that's still going. There's still a lot of music being produced by families Absolutely, of the district. Absolutely. The Walsh family would be a good example. Well, they're talented mm. and they're, they're very willing to share their talents. Mm. But just going back to the generation that's just passed, the Bryans, Frank, Kevin Walsh, Tom Walsh, Leo Walsh, who have passed by in the last 10 to 20 years, all grew up playing music and playing playing in bands mm-hmm. in the local district. Which is a, a big part of the culture of a place. Absolutely. And you could dance to their music. You could actually dance. And the churches were very involved in providing that sort of entertainment as well. They had balls every year. Each parish would have a ball. They'd have, like that was the school or the church hall would provide the space for birthday parties, engagement parties. And it was a tradition in those days, um, as described by the recently deceased Kevin, Kevin Walsh, who grew up at a house on the Tilden, Trentham Tilden Road, part of the Hungry Mile, as it was then known, that when, when one had a party, you invited your parents, your parents' friends, your friends, your friends' parents, your cousins, your schoolmates, your footy team mates. But you also invited young people from neighbouring parishes, which I also, I've always thought is casting the net rather wide to make sure you opened up possibilities within the right... Yes, um, to meet. To meet. make the right contacts yes. of young Catholics from other parishes. Even if you didn't know them, they were very acceptable and very, you know, it was the, the done thing because... Somebody would know somebody who was going yep. to that party and it was perfectly okay if that was a part of the network. If you were part of that. Yes, and many a marriage grew out of those sorts of social occasions. Do you think East Trentham still retains some of that Irish Catholic background? It does. I mean, there's obviously more people have moved into the area now, but it's and still part of it. They embrace that. Partly they're intrigued with the stories, regardless of what we think of the Irish. They are funny people and they tell funny stories and they do funny things. And those stories come back to me through two, three, four different people. It might be a bit like Chinese whispers, but you know the core of the story and you know the the people involved. Mm. Uh, They were funny people. They told funny stories. And the people who moved into the district, particularly on bigger pieces of land, just hunger for that sort of stuff. They hunger for the Irish music. They hunger for the repartee and the um, just the tradition, just yeah. the music, the jigging, the camaraderie, storytelling. the storytelling, and the fact that people aren't shy about just getting up and singing. Um, it's it's just a done thing. And there are people outside the area, like Ballarat and Gordon and Castlemaine, who will come to those sorts of functions in a place like East Trentham because they'd like it and it's not available in many other places. 
and while you can you follow it up that's your interest that's your hobby and they love that sort of entertainment until the what's known as the plough changed hands it was Berkey's pub in Trenton going back 10, 15, 20 years ago, they would have an Irish night once a month, which grew out of the Walsh family and the many talented and musical people in, in Tom's family. They would hold a Irish night and whoever wanted to, you didn't have to be Catholic by this mm. time, would turn up with their instrument and they'd play. And if somebody wanted to sing, they'd get up and sing. And I just heard the most beautiful voices from people I didn't know, but just somebody might be sitting next to you listening to Tom and his family and get up and sing with a beautiful voice and a lovely melodic, lovely lovely Irish sort of lullabies and things like that and folk songs. And although I did read in Tom's writings just this morning that no one was to take too many bites of the cherry. They had to share the, share the exposure around. So no one would could hog the microphone, shall we say. Not that they used a microphone. But also, no dirty jokes and no criticising anybody else's heritage. In other words, no cracks at Irishmen. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I, I went to a couple of them. They were just amazing. People, total strangers or people you knew as well as your own family, would just turn up, sit in that back room at the pub and just play music and love it. And everyone who came would love it too. And those who could only come once in a while or just fell upon it by mistake, didn't know what was happening, happened to be in the right place at the right time, would just love it and go away amazed that this sort of thing could still happen. So I, I think given the fact that COVID has marred our social life in the last two years, I think when the pig gets roaring again, as it's, it's certainly picked up in the last three, four months since it opened, that sort of thing will return and people will come from quite a long way to do it. And, and people who grow up with it and just remember it, it just works for them. Every form of music is instinctive in somebody, and it's the same with the Irish. You hear an Irish tune and the toe taps and the head nods, and eventually somebody will burst into song because they know the words. And that wouldn't have happened with this Irish, Irish uh, heritage. I don't know how long it will be prevalent, Maybe two, three, five generations it's gone, but it's it's still there now, which is wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you, Beth, as we lead up to St Patrick's Day. Yes, yes, yes. The tradition of the march from what was the Catholic Church, Church. what was the Catholic Church, Church, which is now somebody's private home. I'm not sure about these facts because Mary Walsh didn't answer her phone this morning, but I think it started when the parish priest, Father Johnson, with his friends in the Archdiocese of Melbourne and the trustees of the Archdiocese decided to sell the East Trentham Church and as a way of commemorating it as being the, the centre of Irish Catholicism and, and Irish culture in East Trentham, I think it was Mary who established a march from a march. I'd say a dawdle would be a better way to describe it from Sacred Heart Church up to the Pig where... Whatever took place after that was up to the individual, but much merrymaking, music, singing, jigging, some stalls have been set up at different times, potatoes have been sold. Of course, I do hope they've got their safe, safe food, food handling. Safe food handling. 
as yeah, we're it's all a going big day. through that at the moment, aren't we? We are, yes, 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 we are. Yeah. But I think of the days when none of that was necessary and life went on pretty safely anyway. But yes, it's a big day at the pig and mm. they'll have two or three sittings of, of meals and mm. I'm not sure what's on the agenda for this coming 17th of March or the nearest mm. Sunday. But given Amon's, with a name like Amon for a start, that's a good good start in life. His um, business enthusiasm it will turn something, on something good. Something good and even today. if he didn't, people would still turn up and have a good They're time. They're still going to make it. They'll still make it and they'll still remember the pig for that day. So it'll be the wonderful. tradition of Irish... Perseverance yes. to the end, perseverance yes. to the end, despite yeah. all the yeah. you know, hurdles that have been put in front of us over the last two years. It won't be quite as exciting as the St Patrick's Day sports from my childhood, but um, from an adult's point of view, it's probably better. Weatherproof, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, you can always crush inside, can't That's you? That's right. I don't know whether the pig will be putting on limits of numbers, limited mm. numbers inside. I don't think. I don't think the rules restrict us at the moment. But who knows? It's yes. only two weeks away. Yes. It might it all change. by then. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's been very interesting. And um, yes, have a happy St Patrick's Day. I will. I'm not. I better look at. I can tell you, it's going to be on Thursday, two weeks from today. That was from a performance of the Libera Boys' Choir in Guildford Cathedral in 2015. You have been listening to Stories from Within the Archives. I'm Rosie Hill and this is Archive Treasures. If you would like to hear further episodes, you can find our podcasts on our website, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and the Podbean app. Archive Treasures is produced by the Trentham and Districts Historical Society. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to hs at trentham.org or go to our Facebook page, Trentham and Districts Historical Society, Australia. I hope you can tune in next time for more archive treasures. Archive Treasures